Well, good morning, everybody. How are we doing today? Excited to be here? Yeah? Isn't that, wasn't that beautiful worship? I was just saying, you know, as Mark was standing up front there, I said, boy, we are spoiled. I mean, we are spoiled. What a, what a like, start to finish, you know, amazing talent. So thank you, Christina, and the rest of the worship team for, for really just leading us every week. And, man, awesome night. We had a night on Wednesday night of worship, and that was great as well. So, so today, um, I'm going to share a word with you on, on unity. Um, the importance of unity is the title of the sermon, actually. And, and it comes out of uh, John chapter 17. Some of us know it as the high priestly prayer. It's, it's where Jesus actually prays for his apostles and us. So it's one of the most encouraging portions of Scripture to me because we read the words of Jesus as he literally is, again, not just praying for the people around him who are with him at that time, but us who would believe, as he puts it. Right? Imagine that for a moment, if you will. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, praying for us, for you, for me. It's just amazing. You know, it just reaffirms that when he hung on that cross, he had us in mind. Right? That he knew who we were. He set us apart before the creation of the world. Right? And he was already praying for us. He, he was going to die for us, but he was already praying for us. He was already interceding for us through the Father. And that's just such a beautiful sentiment. If you really look at verses 20 through 23, which is what I'll be focusing on mainly today, he stresses his desire for us, the body of Christ, not just CFC, but the body of Christ, the whole church, to be as one, to be united. And what's interesting is, is Jesus never commands or tells us to be one because we already are once we're bound to him. So really what the prayer is for and the expectation is, is now to live and act like it. Like once you become his, once you become adopted into the family of Christ, you're called to unity, you're called to a family You're part of it, and so now, as kingdom citizens, as children of God, you're called to live as such, right? And I think that's where we really miss the mark sometimes. You know, I don't mean us, CFC, I mean Christians. You know, we tend to align ourselves with like a specific church, denomination, or secondary, even tertiary doctrines, and forget to our call to be united in the foundational and primary truths of the gospel. Right? This is evident in the fact that there are purportedly over 30,000 Christian denominations in the world right now. Man. Christian unity is based on shared life in Christ. And it's also a major source for our witness to the world. And this is expressed through common love, common purpose, and a common mission. And so simply put, unity is a vital component of the body of Christ, and it is our job to cultivate, protect, and maintain it at all costs. And we see that throughout Scripture. Paul says it, Jesus says it, all the writers say, we are one in him, we are called to be and live as such. Right? This is where unconditional love for others must supersede denominational allegiance, personal preference, and doctrinal differences. As long as we're not talking about heretical or blasphemous beliefs, obviously, then that is what we ought to do. And so this means as long as we have the foundational truths of the gospel in common and are bound to each other in Christ, then we should be united in love, purpose, and mission and supporting each other through kindness, respect, and gracious speech. There are a lot of people out there within the body of Christ who think it's their duty to police the church. Anyone know someone like this? Sorry. 
They spend this excessive amount of time letting everyone know how wrong their doctrines are, how faulty their denominations are, or that if you don't align with their secondary, even tertiary beliefs, then you're a heretic. You're not a Christian. Your worship in Christian practice is blasphemous to them. And ironically, that behavior directly contradicts the two greatest commands as Jesus reasserted himself. Love God and love others. He also mandates us. We see this in John 13. This is, you know, the end of his life here on earth. And he tells us in John 13, 34 and 35 to love one another just as he loved us. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Right? And how did Jesus love us? Let's look at that for a second. Right? He laid down his life for us. He met us in our mess and he loved us back to life. He didn't say, oh, you're good enough now. Oh, you've met a certain mark now. Oh, you've gotten yourself together enough now. Now I love you. Now I'll go to the cross for you. No, Scripture says in Romans 5.8, it says, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Yet while we were still dead in our trespasses, Christ died for us. Right? We, we, we jokingly say, You know, getting right before you go to church is like getting in shape before you go to the gym. It just doesn't make sense. This is the hospital for sinners. This is not a museum for saints. This is where we come to get well. And so, let's do that. Let's take off our masks. Let's draw together. Let's work on this unity that we're called to, that we're we're commanded to. Right? Right? Jesus was patient with us. He demonstrated how we should live, and we see through his teachings, just like the Sermon on the Mount that we're studying on Wednesday nights, that his greatest concern for us was a right heart condition, godly character, right? When when Paul writes in Romans 8.28, when he says that God is working all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose— He goes on to tell us what that purpose is exactly, and it's to be conformed, to be transformed into the image of his son, Jesus. That's his will for all of us, that we will become like Christ, right? Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We lack love for for each other, church. We lack grace. We lack patience. We lack forgiveness. And we forget that we're all imperfect works in progress. You know who loves that? The enemy. See, he knows that we're stronger when we're united. He knows that we're stronger when we're locked arms together. So he makes every effort to drive a wedge between us, right? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, Satan always hates Christian fellowship. It's his policy to keep Christians apart. Anything which can divide saints from one another, he delights in. He attaches far more importance to godly intercourse than we do. Since union is strength, he does his best to promote separation. See, the enemy, what Spurgeon is saying here is that he sees the value, the strength in unity. And so he sees that the more we are tied to God and one another, that the weaker he is. And so that's where he attacks us in those places. We often give him way too much credit in our personal lives, don't we? You know, the devil made me do it. But really what he's doing is, is he's usually working on a much larger scale trying to divide, right? Look at politics. Look at all the things that are going on in the world right now around us. I see people even in the church debating on on social media with one another. Horrible witness to the world. Horrible witness, church. Paul says it, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Not attack one another if you disagree on something meaningless. Let's stop for a second. Let's just pray, and let's just ask God into this message in this time. Father, we love you, and you're holy and perfect. 
And Lord, as prepared as I am for this message, Lord, it, it means nothing if it doesn't come from you, if it isn't inspired by your spirit and grounded and rooted in your word. And so, Lord, I just pray now that you give us a heart to receive a desire for unity, a desire for obedience, a desire for surrender, Lord. And, Father, that through this we would recognize our power as a church, a church that the gates of hell will not prevail over, God, is in our unity with you and our unity with each other because that is where a lot of our strength comes from, God. So, Lord, use this message in this time to minister to your people. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to read the main text out of John 17, and as I said, it'll be verses 20 through 23, where I really want to focus. It says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, through the word of the apostles, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you have loved me. Unity, defined in the dictionary, is a state of being united or joined as a whole, as a whole. And, I, and, and so in light of that, I want to look at what Christian unity is, okay? Christian unity, first, is based on a shared life in Jesus Christ, a shared life by all believers in Jesus Christ. And the Bible mentions two types of biblical unity, and both of them are found in Ephesians chapter 4. So the first one comes out of Ephesians chapter 4 in the first Three verses, verses one through three. And Paul writes, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Paul says in this version, the ESV, that we are to maintain the unity of the spirit. In the NASB, it says we are to be diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit. The NIV says we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. So Paul is saying, be intentional. Work hard at making make every effort to maintain this unity of the Spirit at all costs. And he tells us how. The bond of peace the bond of peace, which is a fruit of the Spirit, which comes from the Spirit of God, which says that if you have the Spirit of God in you and if you're walking in the Spirit of God, that love and joy and peace will be hallmarks, will be evidence of that life in the Spirit. And Paul is saying, so that's how you're going to maintain your unity is because you're going to walk in the Spirit and that Spirit of peace, that bond of peace will preserve that unity. Our job then is to seek peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, the word says. Amen? The unity of the Spirit is already a fact, as I said, for believers. But we must be diligent to preserve it. And then the second type of unity we see in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. He's saying a whole lot there, right? But I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus has given certain people certain gifts, certain abilities to equip his people for these works of service so that we, the whole, the body, may be built up until we reach this unity in faith 
and in the knowledge of the Son of God, which is why there are pastors and teachers and preachers. There are people who are prophets and apostles. He said, these people are going to equip the church, the body, in knowledge so that they can become mature and attain this whole measure of the fullness of Christ, like I said, Jesus desires for us. That is his will, that each of you, that all of us, the entire body of Christ, the universal church, would become like him, that we would be little Jesuses, <laughs> that when we go out in public, that when we go into our homes, that when we go into a store or our workplaces, no matter where we are, that people would encounter Christ because they encountered us. And in the unity of the Spirit and unity as, the, as Christians, as the body, when we, when we encounter each other in public, regardless of where our denominational beliefs may fall, people are going to say, wow, look at how united. Look at the, the bond that they have. That's something different than I've ever seen in the world. And, and, you know, we're not going to stop and pre-qualify people, right? We're not going to say, hey, which church do you go to, by the way? Which Jesus are you worshiping? What do you believe about salvation and the secondary matters? Can you lose it? Is it? Can you not? No. If we build relationship through those things as the unity of the Spirit is, is pursued, then yeah, deeper conversations will happen and you have the opportunity to discuss those things at some point and discern those things. But in the moment when we encounter a brother or sister in Christ in the world, our job is to love one another. Jesus says it. They'll know who you are by this. He says the world's going to say, wow, they must follow Jesus. They're weird. They really like one another. We go beyond pleasantries and superficialities, don't we? Have you ever hugged a stranger when you realize that you both are one in Christ? It's different. Christian unity is not organizational or external unity. And let me explain this a little further, but it's not this organizational unity that we have made it. That's a Western culture thing. We create groups. You know, we, we create, we, we have these buildings and denominations, and we have to, like, everything's going to be orderly and organized. So, so it's like, I'm part of this group in Christianity, and I'm part of that group in Christianity. And, you know, Christian unity is not denominational unity. And I'm not saying denominations are bad. What I'm saying is, is that's not what Jesus is praying for. Jesus is praying that all his people would align with him and with each other regardless of those denominational differences. So denominational allegiance will vary from person to person, which is why we have over 30,000 of them. Because there's no such thing as perfect theology. Did you know that? There's not one person in this room that possesses it. And the moment you think you do, the further away you are. Because the reality is, is that God is infinite and we're finite. I heard it once said that capturing God is like trying to scoop up the Pacific Ocean in a thimble. It's not possible. Our minds are not equipped. Paul says, I see in a mirror dimly now, but at that day, in, the, in his glory, I'll understand a lot more. And so it's, it's the understanding of that, staying humble, staying teachable, and remembering that we're all one in Christ. And, you know, I always say it's like, you know, I don't know how long you've been coming to church or doing the Christian thing, but for me it's been about 25 years, and I'm going to tell you, if I go back 10 or 15 years and I look at my theology or maybe some of the things I posted on social media, I'm like, oh, dear Lord, did I really say that? Did I really believe or even teach that? Because, you know, we don't know where we are in our journey. And so that's why Paul says, give grace. Don't get involved with these meaningless debates. Give grace. Be kind. That's more important than secondary matters. What is important is that we all fall under this flag, that Christ died for our sins, and by grace we are saved, and faith is what does that through his resurrection. It has nothing to do with my works, your works, or how good we are. It's all about how good he is and what he did on that. Amen? 
So we need to set aside the areas we differ and, and come together on common ground. Right? I love Jack Hiles, this quote. It's beautiful. He says, on essentials, unity. Right? On the essentials, unity. He says, on non-essentials, liberty, freedom. And in everything, charity, love. In everything, love each other. Right? Jesus wasn't praying for a one-world church organized under one leader in a one-church government. That's not what he was praying for. And just because a church, this is the other side of it, flies the Christian flag, it also doesn't mean they're preaching or teaching the true gospel or even following the true Christ for that matter. So what we have to do is, is we have to know. We have to be equipped. Again, going back to Ephesians 4, where Jesus, where it says, Jesus gave some to be apostles, to be teachers, to be prophets, to be shepherds. Right? He gives us this five-fold ministry so that the church, the body, will be equipped. And we all have a place. And the reality is, is if we do not get equipped, if we do not plug in, if we don't show up, then how can we be? How can we discern the true Christ and true doctrine? How can we not be misled? How, how can we protect ourselves from the wolves who come in dressed as sheep and lead us into false understanding of who Christ is and the truth of salvation? And so the way we do that is, is yeah, we show up on Sunday, absolutely. But that's the beginning. That shouldn't be the apex of our Christianity or our Christian walk. If all we did, just think about this, and I shared this recently, if all we did was show up to church on Sunday for 52 weeks out of the year, every single day, didn't miss one Sunday, like all of you, <clears throat> and we heard a 45-minute sermon every Sunday, okay? Let's just say we get about 50 hours of Christianity fed to us or taught to us on Sunday throughout an entire year, 50 hours. And how many hours are in a week? How many hours are in a day? How, many, how much time does the world have to indoctrinate us? How much time does social media have to indoctrinate us compared to 50 hours a year? What are we up against? Right, so we've got to get to a place where we recognize these things, our vulnerabilities, and then we overcome them with the solutions that God provides, which is through unity in the church with each other, when things get tough, a lot of times we pull away. But when things get tough, we need to press in. We need to be drawn together even more. We need to walk together. We need to hold each other up. We need to pray for each other. We need to carry each other's burdens. That's what the church does. That's what the church is. Right? And so think about this. We have community groups starting. What do you think the, the purpose of community groups are? It's so that you get together in these smaller groups, these smaller pockets of people, so you can be real, so you can talk a little bit more, so you can get to know each other, so that you can unite, build bonds, build friendship, and get to know Jesus together a little bit more. We had 170 people last session signed up. That's an amazing number for this size church. It's excellent. We want 200 this time. We want 200. In order to see 200 people in community groups this session, that's the challenge. We need 20 groups. We need 20 facilitators and hosts because we max at 10. So that means some people are going to have to step up. That means some of you who are on the fence right now, God is, t is tugging at your heart, or I'm pushing you a little bit right now. <laughs> like a rocket. Did you see that? <laughs> These long legs. You need to step up. We need facilitators. We need people who are Bible literate. I didn't say Bible scholars. Bible literate. Who can facilitate a group. Who can go along with the curriculums that we provide. We're going to be doing Galatians by Tim Keller. And we're going to be doing Who's on the Mic by Louis Giglio. Both of them are easily structured so that you can follow along and present it to your group. And be part of the discussion with them. Step up. Let's create a greater sense of unity here in the church. Those sign-ups start next week, so we got a week for those decisions to be made for more facilitators to come. And I'm trusting God with that. 
But for the next two weeks, that's what you're going to see in the gym, and you're going to hear him promote it. Get involved. <clears throat> Christian unity is not unanimity on every doctrine. It's not this sort of every doctrine we all agree mentality. Right? There's going to be different things. But we have to look at there are three levels when it comes to the matter of Bible doctrines. There are three levels. And so let's examine these quickly so that way we have a better understanding. Right? Essential truths. These essential truths are just necessary for salvation. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. So to deny any of these would be heresy and a denial of the faith. And so let's look at these. All true Christians agree on these truths. We all have to. This is what makes the body of Christ, is the agreement on these essentials. And they include the inspiration and authority of Scripture, that this is the Word of God, inspired by God, penned by men. We, we all agree on the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, Spirit the Godhead, three in one. The full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ. His substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, and his bodily second coming, and salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works. These are things we have to agree on. Anything outside of those truths, we start to get into heresy. Essential. But then we have what we called important but non-saving truth, right? Other, other uh, terms for these might be secondary matters or secondary truths, and some people hate that. They hate when you call these things secondary truths because they're so hung up on them. Because to them, they become a priority because they focused in on these secondary matters so much that they've tried to make them primary matters. And they're not. You can't undo what's done. You can't redefine essentials. These truths will affect, and they are important, they affect how we live as Christians, the way we understand God, man, salvation, and the Christian life. And denial or differences on these matters are not heretical or salvation-related, okay? True Christians will differ on these matters, which include biblical prophecy, Calvinism and Arminianism, you might have heard of, views of baptism, charismatic gifts, roles of men and women in the church, church government, and in some cases, certain views of creation. But these, again, are not salvation-related. And don't get me wrong, as you mature, you're going to form a more solid understanding as you study the Scriptures and get to know the Scriptures more. But it's not going to affect your salvation. It's going to affect your worship. It's going to affect your lifestyle. But it certainly shouldn't divide us. And then third, there's these interesting but not essential or important matters, and these issues will not affect the way you live your Christian life. The different views and positions on these matters have zero effect on salvation and should have no impact whatsoever on our relationship with other Christians, and they include very minor uh, interpretive issues on various vague texts. So in light of this, it's really important for us to discern the level of importance of a doctrine before we debate over it, or even worse, allow it to cause division in the body of Christ. We are the protectors of that. We are the ones who have to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. That's our job. We're not the church police. We've got to stop thinking like that. We've got to stop standing around with a critical eye looking at all the things that are being done wrong or not to our satisfaction. We've got to stop. We've got to look at the essentials. And if the essentials are there and if the essentials are taught and if the essentials are preached and people are standing firmly on those and then we get to the secondary matters, we can have spirited and peaceful debate or conversations about those things, but it shouldn't divide us. And if for some reason the church you're going to does not embrace or teach these secondary matters, and that really bothers you a lot, there are churches that do teach it. But my, my suggestion to you is, is that before you leave, check your heart and make sure that you are making every effort to maintain unity and the bond of peace. And you'll have our blessing. We just want to make sure that 
you're still part of this team of Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, and he says in chapter 2, he says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must be not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wrong. Who's really good at being patient? Oh, nobody. Okay, good. When we're wronged, we want justice, right? Unless, of course, we wrong someone, then we want grace. But how patient are we when we're wronged or somebody challenges our positions or even makes a good argument against our position? And if we find ourselves getting into these doctrinal arguments where we're quarreling, right, where we're, where we're quarrelsome and we're not patient when wronged or challenged, then we have an issue. That's a heart thing. It goes back to what Jesus wants for us. Godly character. Godly character. Christian unity is based on our common salvation in Jesus Christ. So Jesus is not praying for the entire world here. Remember that. In verse 9 of chapter 17, you can go back and look at it, but he's, he's not. He's praying for his apostles and those who would believe. This is a very specific prayer. These are his people he knows what we're going to be up against. He knows the challenges that we're going to have with each other and with the world. And so he's like interceding and saying, God, please strengthen them. Tie them together. Help them to fight for this bond. You know, he's not praying for interfaith unity among all Christians with Buddhists, Hindus, and Muslims in this, in this place. And if we try to insert that here, it's out of place. It's wrong. This is very specific prayer for us, with us. He's, you know, we are called to love others. I'm not saying we shouldn't. Of course we are. But that's not what this is about right here. This is about Jesus saying, us, we, you, we need to be united. And he's covering that in prayer. He compares this unity with that which exists between him and the Father. You see that in verse 21 where he says, that they may be, all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. That's his prayer. So tightly knit together like Jesus is with the Father and the Father is with the Son that we would be in him. It reminds me of a quote by Toza that I often quote and I don't have it in front of me, but basically what he says is that an orchestra is more in tune with each other when they are tuned to one definite fork. And I'm sure you could explain this better than I could, but but basically, if you have this C standard, let's just say, and you all tune to this true C, then all, by proxy, because you're tuned to C, are going to be more tuned to each other than if you had tried to tune yourself to the person beside you. Just like a hundred worshipers worshiping God, if we are all worshiped and tuned to him, we'll be more in tune with each other than if we try to look or act or worship like the person next to us. And so that's our job, is to tune to him, to be, and this is what Jesus is praying, that, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and, and I are one, that they might, may also be tuned or in us. Right? And so Jesus and the Father are eternally one, and their shared nature is God. And when we become born again and become children of God, we then share in the divine nature. We're, we're privileged to share in that divine nature. That begins now because the Spirit of God is in you if you have professed your faith in Christ. You are living, walking temples of the Holy Spirit. There is a divine nature in you. And so that needs to be recognized. And we ought to live as such. Hard to do some days, right? The world is tough. There's so much out there that, that is vying for our attention, that wants us. They want to steal us. And the enemy, like I said, you know, like Spurgeon said, he's just trying to drive that wedge just that little bit. You know, it's not, it's not even extreme. You know, I remember reading the Barner Report, and the Barner Report says that, you know, in a study that they did, 
that of all the churches, they do these huge studies, and they, it's great statistics. But what he said was, is, you know, what, what this report said was, is that out of people who've been going to church for five or, or more years, statistically, 30% of those are not saved. They don't believe in the essential doctrines that I talked about. They might grasp one or two, but, but they're really not saved because they really haven't wrapped their mind around the truth because they're still holding on to their truths, subjective truths, not definitive. And so that's a sad thing if you think about it, that it could be that people who we are spending years with in service and ministry and worship, rubbing elbows up against, right, that they may not even be saved. And so hence the need for us to be united. Because if we're united and we're in true Christ-centered relationship, we're going to learn these things. And we're going to minister and we're going we're to be able to lead people to the full counsel of God. That's our job. We're all ministers here. All of us. And Christian unity is also based in the common glory of Jesus Christ. That every single one of us is to display his glory and we are all privileged to know his glory. So why is Christian unity important? Well, Christian unity is important because it witnesses to the world. It shows the world who he is through us. It's one of the ways we show Christ But Jesus mentions this twice. In verse 21, he prays that we all may be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. And then in verse 23, he prays that we may be perfect, uh, excuse me, perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me. To keep it short and sweet, Christian unity is extremely important because the unity of Christ's body shows a divided world the power of the gospel. It shows how it unites us not only with God through Jesus, but also to one another through Jesus. So this is important because the world is, is dark and people are dying and going to hell. And this is important because people don't understand unconditional love and they don't understand what true unity is. They unite on things like politics They unite on things like gender, or they unite on things like race. We limit ourselves to the carnal. And what Jesus does, what the gospel does, is it unites us in the spirit. And it transcends all of these other carnal, temporary things. And that's where we need to be. That's what the world needs to see that I am my brother's keeper, that I do love them as Christ loved me, that I'm willing to lay down my life for my brother and sister, that I'm going to live in kindness and charity and generosity and inconvenience sometimes. It's going to get uncomfortable. But that's what we're called to, church. We're not called to convenience We're called to radical love. It transcends the world's understanding, and so they need to see the gospel of Jesus Christ lived out in his church so that they can come to know Jesus as well. Amen? That's the point. God created every single human being in his own image, and God's image is one that displays perfect unity and that he exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Spirit. So how is this Christian unity to be expressed by us? How is it? Christian unity is expressed through common love, common purpose, and common mission. So let's wrap our minds around this for a second. We express this unity, we live out this unity when we live in common love, purpose, and mission. And so I'll break it down quickly. But common love of believers, what it looks like, and Jesus makes this staggering statement that the Father has loved us even as he loved Jesus. It's like, what? I don't even think we 
really understand or have realized that. That should floor us. That should floor us. See, we're going to spend eternity trying to fathom the depths of the Father's love for us, and it should be increasingly influential in our daily lives now. Because when we start to understand through the Spirit of God in us, through the fellowship around us, through worship and song, through service, through deliverance, through sanctification, as God becomes more and more real to us, and our faith increases more and more over the years, that love should be understood even more, and it should influence us, and it should change us, and it should drive us to a new way of life. Paul expresses this love so beautifully in Romans chapter 8. It's in verses 37 through 39, and I always read this at funerals for believers. Because it's so important that we get this. It says, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Overwhelmingly, more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul starts off by saying, that we have won, we're victorious through him who loved us. That victory that we, we sang about, that we prayed about, it doesn't come from your might or my might or my abilities and your gifts. No, those things are after effects. It comes, the victory comes through him who loved us. And so if you've experienced victory in your life, or you're marching and you're on that battlefield right now and you're heading towards triumph, What's going to lead you there is the love of Christ, not your strength, power, or might, but his great love for you. And that's where we celebrate and worship. That's where we fall down and surrender. Because it doesn't matter how good we are. It's how good he is. Then he goes on to say, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing more powerful than the love of God on this planet, in this universe, here, now, or in the afterlife, that is more powerful, that can separate us, can untie us from God's love. And so that's the love that we're dealing with. This is just a glimpse at the awesome power of God's love that has captured each and every one of us that know Jesus. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And I love how John, he applies this in this wonderful truth in 1 John chapter 4. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, right, if he loved us the way he has to this degree, then we also ought to love one another. It's the least we can do. That's what John's saying. It's really that simple, church. Why is this so hard for us to do as a church? Why is it so hard for us to love? Why is it that we divide on the, on the non-essentials? And then we backbite and slander and gossip. We're called to love because God loved us first. That's the only reason why we even understand it at this point. It's really logical, and it's really simple, and we just need to do it. All that other sin stuff, we need to let go of. It's not love. It's relatively easy to love folks who are just like us, isn't it? Isn't it? You know, people who, who think like us, talk like us, vote like us, look like us, live where we live. New England's an interesting place. You know, we're all pretty much kind of just swimming in the culture, and this is what we're used to. But you go in other parts of the country, we're crazy. And we're terrible drivers. Can, can I get an amen? <laughs> That's a unanimous. But it's really easy to love people like us. But you know what? We're called to something greater. We're called to something higher. We're called to love everyone radically the way Christ has loved us, the way the Father has loved us through Christ Jesus. See, Paul reminds us that the love we have for others must 
transcend carnal and worldly matters like race, religion, socioeconomic background, gender, sexuality, lifestyle, and so on. Right? Loving someone, though, it doesn't mean we co-sign or endorse everything that they do. That's not what loving someone is. It's simply just loving the people that God has placed in our paths and in our lives because that is what we're commanded to do. We don't have to endorse their sin to love them. Did you know that? We don't. And we don't need to expect them to endorse ours either. Okay? Sometimes life and people who love you are going to have difficult conversations with you. They're not going to tell you what you're doing is okay because if it's wrong, it's wrong, and they love you. But I used to to take really, this is me personally, and I'm sure some of you can relate to this, I used to take really hard stances on certain things, certain positions, you know? Especially like when I was, you know, in those first few years of Christianity, you know, when you're full of zeal and you got the truth and now everybody else needs to know and be corrected. Anybody still in that stage? Don't talk. So I learned through a lot of mistakes and arrogance and conviction that love covers over a multitude of sins. That not everybody needs to be corrected by me. Not everybody needs to know what I stand against. And there are going to be people in my life, especially non-Christians, who don't know the truth, who are lost, who are dying and going to hell and don't even realize it, that don't need to be told that constantly. We don't argue people into the kingdom. We love them into the kingdom. And so when I love people who are living a certain lifestyle or in a certain sin, I, they know and when they're ready and when they're sick of this lifestyle or when the world has overwhelmed them or they've come to the end of themselves that I'm someone safe now that they can talk to. That I'm only going to come at them with love. And that any hard discussion I have with someone at that, from that point on is coming from a place of love. But if they don't think I, I love them, they don't know that I love them, then they're not gonna, I'm not going to be the guy they come and talk to when they're ready. And I thank God for putting people in my life who understood that. My wife always says, you know, people don't, know how, don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And we ought to live by that. Very wise woman with great taste. So now let's look at that. Sorry, that was just so weak. Uh, so let's look at our common purpose as believers. Although we have different gifts and different callings, our common purpose is to glorify God in all that we do. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, he says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Everything. All things. Even your driving. Do it for the glory of God. I struggle in that area, I'm not going to lie. We also glorify him by living in obedience to his commands and by bearing much fruit. Jesus says this in John 15, right? He says, you bring joy, you glorify my Father when you live in obedience and bear much fruit. Right? This is that common purpose. And we also, we glorify him as we're more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, But we all, we all, not some, not most, but we all, with unveiled faces, masks off, completely bare before God, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, right? Seeing our sin in light of his glory, are being transformed to the same image. See, that's the thing about the body of Christ. The ground is level at the foot of the, uh, foot of the cross, So I don't care where you came from. I don't care where you are. I don't care where you think you're going. The reality is, is that every single person in this room or every church that's meeting in the world today is all being sanctified and conformed to the same image, Jesus. That's the ideal. Your ideal and my ideal are not different, not in God's eyes. And that's his will for every single one of us. And then he says, from the glory to glory, 
just as from the Lord, the Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit is doing this in all of us, together, we all. Now let's look at this common mission of believers, right? And Paul puts it like this. This is the common mission, right? Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's how every single one of us ought to conduct ourselves, in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, right? Again, oneness, striving together for the, go- for the faith of the gospel. That's it. Like, like Paul is saying that every single one of us ought to be moving in the same direction. We're the flock. We're the fold. We're the sheep. And all of us need to be working together in one spirit with one mind. Yes, we're going to have disagreements. Yes, it'll get ugly at times. Some sheep smell worse than others, just so you know. And some people are more difficult than others. And guess what? We're still called to love them. Still called to love them. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. (coughs) Excuse me. So our common mission is to fulfill the Great Commission. It's to make disciples of all the nations. That's why the church is present on the earth, is to make disciples, to bring people to Christ. And Jesus, that was his final marching orders for us in Matthew chapter 28. And while we may differ with other believers over secondary matters, as long as they proclaim the truth of the gospel, we should rejoice, as Paul says in Philippians 1, that Christ is being proclaimed. And so, church, we must strive to love and accept all whom Christ has saved. We can maintain unity without compromising biblical truth or our personal integrity. And in doing so, what we will do is is we will glorify God, we'll demonstrate his love to the world, and we'll allow people to see that even though we aren't perfect, that the body of Christ is united in him and that there is a seat for every single person at his table. In this moment, we have an opportunity, church. We have an opportunity to demonstrate and celebrate that unity with God and with one another. I'm going to ask Pastor Willie to come on up as we partake in communion together. And we're remembering Jesus, what he did for us on the cross, and that through his blood and sacrifice, we are one in him as he is one in the Father. Amen? Pastor Willie?